Hey everybody, it's Jake from Tasting Anarchy here. We've got a really great program for you today. We had our first ever winemaker on the show, John W. Danius. John, I apologize if I'm saying your name wrong. Uh, he's a winemaker out of Portland, Oregon. He had a lot of really good information for us. Uh, Mason, I think we had really great questions. So if you're interested in the ins and outs of winemaking, this is the episode for you. Before I get into the episode, I want to let everybody know that on February 7th, Car Campit from the Friends Against Government and I are going to get together in Arlington, Texas with the Dallas-Fort Worth Libertarian crowd and just have kind of a, a fun get-together, share, have some pizza, maybe have some beers, and talk liberty. It's uh, going to be February 7th, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Mellow Mushroom in Arlington, Texas. If you guys can make it, awesome. We hope to see you there. Until then, enjoy the show. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets a rum, start singing all night. Drinking wine's for the to drink wine. Wine's for the to drink wine. Wine's for the to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets a rum, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy. I'm Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by Mason Joseph. And today we have a very special guest, from the very first winemaker that we've ever had on, John. Yes. Uh, John, uh, we're really excited to have you, and this is actually a great opportunity for both Mason and me. We're, although we've been doing the show for a little more than a year, we're still, I guess, introductory level in wine, and we've had conversations with a lot of like people who are experts in drinking wine, but this is the first time we've ever had anybody who is an expert in making wine, which is really exciting for us. Um, well, I'm honored to be on the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Yeah. Thank this, you. this is what's great about the internet. We can we can bring people together from all over the all over the world and talk and share ideas and share love of wine. Uh, yes. So, Mason, I uh, this week I didn't do the traditional your wine, my wine. I went ahead mm -hmm. and I, I, have, I have a couple of bottles of Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley that have been on sale at Total Wine. I've done the review of this before, and actually it was only, I think, two episodes ago. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, Domain Lubejack, and if you guys want to hear my review of it, you can go back just two episodes. Um, it's uh, Domain Lubejack. It's from Dundee, Oregon. It's a Willamette Valley wine, and that is really all I want to say about it because I want to promote the other episode, and I want to get into talking to John. Uh, mm -hmm. Mason, what are you sipping on tonight? Uh, so, in, um, because we were going to have John on, and I didn't want to go through the uh, Chilean wines that I got from the wine club my wife signed me up for my birthday, I'm actually drinking a, um, a vignette that I, we've done on the show out of Virginia from Leesburg. Um, this is Tierre, or Tierre, I'm, I know I'm mispronouncing most of that, but um, it's a Leesburg one in, out of Virginia. It's uh, not super expensive, but it's one of those ones that. Of the Virginia ones I've had, it's kind of my favorite. It's it's brighter than the other one that we had done out of the Williamsburg Winery. Um, so yeah, I was like, all right, go with one I've done. So we <laughs> yeah. get to hear about John's. Yeah. We we had similar ideas because I, I really kind of wanted to get into talking to John since I've I don't want to bombard you, John, with tons of questions one after the other. I want to make it more of a conversation, but. 
Uh, I wanted to kind of get through our normal format a little bit. We both enjoy these wines. Uh, I'll put in the show notes which episodes we reviewed them in. John, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I brought uh, two bottles of my own wine, uh, and but then I've also got uh, a Saint Innocent, uh, which is Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. Uh, this one is uh, a 2006 from Seven Springs Vineyard. Oh, oh. oh okay. A 2000. You said 2006. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. That's not, that's that's yeah. nice. Nice. Uh, nice old wine. Yeah, I thought I'd mm-hmm. something nice for the show. Okay. <laughs> well, John, yeah. now. I think that we're all roughly around the same age, and I've done some brewing. I think, Mason, you've, you've kind of watched me do some brewing. I don't know uh-huh. if you've done any on your own. Uh, yeah. That's like the extent of alcohol making, other than kombucha, that I've gotten into. John, how did you end up getting into winemaking? Well, you say brewing. Do you mean beer brewing? Yes, beer brewing. Right. Yeah, that's how I got into wine as well. Um, so I was – Went to college in Chicago. I was living in these, well, I guess, so then eventually I had my own apartment, uh, and I was about 20, mm-hmm. and I started brewing beer. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed cooking, and uh, I guess I got it. I realized at some point that I could, I was underage, and I could brew my own beer if I wanted. But I, I think I was underage when I first started, but... Um, <laughs> Started home brewing, and I did that uh, until I moved to Oregon, which was uh, 12 years ago. And then I was just really attracted to, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I moved here was because of all the agriculture that's happening right outside the city. And I just thought, my God, I mean, I can go and get these great grapes and make wine from them. So I started with my same setup from the home beer brewing making five gallons of wine, and then it sort of increased until, uh, I guess, about six years ago when I started my winery. But yeah, yeah, home beer brewing, all those concepts just transfer right over to the wine and most of the equipment, too. Really? Okay, so that maybe, Mason, you know, all my beer brewing equipment's up in your attic. Maybe this is actually like 10 feet away, like just up there. Yeah. Go up up there. I've got, actually, if you ever want to do a small batch, Mason, I have a, Mm -hmm. I have a a three gallon, um, fermenter up there that you could use. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to do the full five if you, well, anyways, that's, that's, that's another thing. We'll talk about that later. Um, (laughs) uh, John, um, so like this is, I guess this is what's interesting about it is you kind of, you went from, went from brewing to home making wine and what, what, I mean, other than just kind of transferring those skills into winemaking, like one thing I saw that you shared was an old bottle that you had done, in, uh, a 2008 vintage that was a, I think a Merlot or, or maybe mm. was it a Merlot or a Malbec? Um, that was a Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Made uh, in my basement, um, uh, and that would have been the second or third vintage that I'd ever made wine. Okay, so well, how do you go from just making it in your your house for your own consumption to, I guess, becoming like a, an owner of a winery in Portland and not having, like, I guess, access to the grapes yourself, having grown them, but access to grapes grown by another farmer. I and mean, that, that does seem pretty typical. Mason and I have covered several stories of different uh, winemakers who do it that way. But for you, uh, like, on your website, I can see you've got uh, Pinot Noir from, or two different Pinot Noirs from two different places. Dundee, which is the Pinot Noir I'm drinking, is also from D- Dundee Hills. And then you have just a, a Willamette Valley one. And then you also have a Pinot Noir Rosé. Those are, and it seems like those are the three grapes that you're working with now. How did you get to this point where you're working with Pinot Noir? Is it because Oregon is so 
does so good with Pinot Noir grapes or is it fun, more fun to work with those grapes? Like what's going on there? Well, first of all, I should say that my, my website is a little out of date and those wines that I've listed on my, my website are sort of uh, a remainder of stock that I have left over because um, that 2012 was my best vintage, so I've held them back. Uh, last vintage, not this one, but the last one, I didn't make any wine, so uh, uh, I'm getting ready to do a bottling of stuff that I've done uh, recently, so uh, the, that'll all soon be. But I am still doing the uh, Pinot Noir. Okay. And- I, well, I was a cigarette smoker uh, in college. And when I drank wine, I liked rich wines. I loved that classic um, Bordeaux style where you got a lot of tannins and a full body. And I, when I drank scotch, I loved the peaty, the peatier, the better. And, um, you know, I, when I moved to Oregon, I, I guess it was just around the time when I was quitting smoking, and that must have been part of it. But, um, yeah, I was not a fan of Pinot Noir, and I just decided that I was going to get into making it because it was the grape that was good and local. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started buying it, and and I guess, you know, I wouldn't say, go so far as to say it was a revelation to me, but um, it was uh, – it was uh, I, I sort of was branching out into more subtler – types of wines and the fact that pinot noir is lighter and goes goes so well with food oh yeah uh, yeah so it has become my favorite grape but at first it was just that it was the, the grape that was in the area just availability at that point well uh it just seemed it was so cool to me that i could drive 45 minutes or even a half hour and you could go visit these vineyards if i wanted to do cabernet sauvignon you can do that out here, but I would have had to have driven four hours to Walla Walla yeah. or Acoma or something like that. And uh, I just thought, why, why, why do that? Why not start with the stuff that's that's close in? Yeah, that makes a lot that of sense. that makes a lot yeah. of sense actually. Now, this kind of actually it doesn't derail my questions, but now that I know that these are a little bit older, um, I, I had a question that was in in the picture on your website. I you're 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 uh, photographed there with these barrels, oak barrels. But yeah. one of the ones that you list is uh, Pinot Noir Rosé. And I don't know for sure, but are, aren't rosés done differently than being oak-aged, or can they be oak-aged also? Uh, oh, right. Uh, well, I'm just in front of the barrels because mm-hmm. that's the uh, image. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> when I saw it, I was like, man, this guy's awesome. But, <laughs> there's no reason you can't oak-age uh, a rosé. Um my rosé that I did has not been oak-aged. Okay. And I'm doing a Pinot Gris this year, uh, and that's not going to get any oak uh, either. That's, um, that's, one, that's uh, Mason's favorite, you know, or one of Mason's favorites. Like if I had stood in front of my stainless steel tanks for the photo, mm-hmm. you know, those, those images are so uh, – and this is a point that you could talk to me about. Okay. Uh, long, go down some anarchist uh, rabbit hole here, but – I mean, there there is so much uh, pretense that is put up in front of wine. Yeah, and mm-hmm. these these uh, certain things just have so much. They they mean so. There's such a rut that's been uh, driven in with it, and um, I think a big barrier to people understanding about wine is that they it it's almost like joining a church or something. You know? Yeah. And they say, "Well, oh, you gotta you gotta become a member. Go to this class." 
<laughs> read the gospel. And, and it's almost like that with wine. So, you know, if I had taken a photo of me in front of the stainless steel tanks, then people would say, well, what does this mean? Does, it, does this mean that you are an anti-oak extremist? Oh, sure. <laughs> so. Well, that, that's funny because, I mean, that's part of the reason Jacob and I started the show is we both were kind of coming off of a love of a high love of beer and Jacob was at the point where you know drinking that much beer wasn't doing them that well and I've kind of gotten to that point now where it's like you know you have three beers and you're kind of like uh the next day and a half and you're like oh, I had three glasses of wine I don't feel as bad but we were you know my my mom used to work in a higher end restaurant where they would do wine tastings every Wednesday to kind of introduce the staff to the selection as they changed it and stuff like that so but you know we were always kind of like oh toity toity and you know like you, you they have this it's like you know like anything where you get into it there's this own vocabulary but it's like well, we don't know what any of this means so we're gonna blunder into this <laughs> yeah and I, whatever yeah I mean, that, that was basically that's that's that was kind of the the angle that our show takes is um although it's a little bit cliche even so is uh drink what you like and um there is like an intimidation level of uh, the way that bottles are labeled sometimes, particularly European bottles, and the way that uh, people speak about wine. The the tastes and aromas that they're picking up are so confusing to a lot of people that it's it's intimidating. And then also like when you go to the when you go to a restaurant and they're like telling you all these things and you're like, eh, I don't know, <laughs> like I I don't know what's going on. So. That's sort of the approach that that Mason and I I took on the show was that we're just kind of like well let's just get, let's just get into it like whatever like I knew that I like black box Cabernet Sauvignon I knew that I was not doing too well with beer anymore and I was like okay so now I understand that I do like wine and it was just always that these like very very sweet Chardonnays and these very sweet other wines were just not for me mm-hmm. but even now like I, I appreciate them a little bit more and sort of on your on the same note with with uh, the Pinot Noir. At first, I didn't care for Pinot Noir, not because uh, I didn't think it was I didn't think it was like revolting or anything like that. It just didn't taste like anything. It was like mm. I would try it, and I was like, "Well, I don't really." I mean, it tastes like wine, okay, but it's very light, very stuff. But now that we've been, I've been doing like a lot of comparisons now, so I'll go and get like Burgundy, uh, you know, uh, Willamette Valley, you know, wine of Oregon, maybe some Pinot Noir from Sonoma or somewhere like that, and then compare them. And I'm like, okay, these are actually very different, very interesting, and you can get a lot of a uh, lot of difference going on. And, and that makes sense, though. Too, what you're saying is that if you took it in front of the steel tanks, you know, people are going to be like, oh, what's this guy think going on? But the the picture itself did kind of bring some questions to mind, and that was, you've got this this you you do a Pinot Noir rosé, and from what you're saying, it sounds like you do it in steel. Something that Mason and I learned recently is that uh, people do uh, whites and rosés in concrete, uh, and that had never occurred to me before. Uh, mm-hmm. And do you have any preference on that, or do you do you know one way or the other why they would do it in concrete or why they would do it in stainless steel? Is it like a, a volume thing? Like what's going on with that? Uh, you know, I believe the concrete tanks are more expensive than the stainless steel tanks, uh, although it depends how you make them. But um, there's a winery down the street from me uh uh called the uh geez i always call it the uh it's the uh southeast wine collective and they have a couple concrete tanks and they are uh literally a concrete tank on legs that you can move around oh that's kind of cool but uh another i think the way they started was that um they were a budget style tank and what you you dig a pit in the ground and and pour the concrete and then you would have this pit in the ground and it'd be temperature controlled. Um, 
I have never used a concrete tank, and um, uh, I don't really know what it would do. You know, the concrete, uh, I'm not sure if concrete is neutral or I would assume there's a residual uh, base base uh, in terms of pH, mm-hmm. uh, but I can't. I would think it would be neutralized if you're going to be putting the wine in it. Um, I mean, I would I would just assume it's going to add some limestone flavors okay. to the wine. Uh, the advantage of concrete is that you can power wash it, so you can get it really clean. Uh, mm-hmm. With an oak barrel, um, there sort of is a limit to how much you can clean it. Yeah, that's uh, like you do the with oak. It's like a like a steam or something like that to clean it. Yeah, but then every time you clean it, uh, you're, you're removing some of the wood in the structure, so you can only oh. do it. So much. Oh, well, that make that makes sense because that's one of the things actually I, I have in my notes here to ask you about was why can you only use an oak barrel a certain number of times? Because they they'll say like this wine was X number of months on new oak, this many months on two year old oak, but you don't really ever see like fifteen year old oak. Uh, right. Well, uh, actually, you can Google, um, uh, you know, like, I don't know what the term would be, but, you know, there's some wineries that brag that they have 200-year-old barrels that they're using uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually really large. Uh, they tend to refer to them as well after about three years because there's no uh, oak flavor. But, but then after that, um, they could be used for 40, 50 years, I suppose, if, yeah. if you're gentle uh with them but they start picking up uh all the things that have happened to the wine in that barrel uh sort of build up okay and yeah that makes sense just inevitable that you're going to have something go wrong or something in mm-hmm. a barrel at some point mm-hmm. have a little bit of vinegar Britannomyces, and uh the wine might not be messed up uh from it because if you catch it but uh, at some point, you're going to not trust that barrel anymore. On the flip side, the barrel could be giving you funky flavors that you really like. You know, a little bit of Brett is going to give you some barnyard aroma. Mm-hmm. And so the neutral barrels are – but, the, you know, there again, that's that's so much of what is uh, known about wine is what the winemakers are, are saying as part of the story. So you're right. You know, they don't say 15-year-old barrels that they're using. Uh, they might use terms like neutral oak. And um, it's it's just uh, it doesn't fit in with the narrative. Right. You know, to get back to a point you're asking me about how I got into wine or, or doing that. Yeah. I I've always uh, well, I've always had a trouble trouble in school with uh, studying and learning and following a curriculum. And for me, it's much easier to learn things hands on. And I I mean, I think everything I've done has started as some kind of small project that I've done mm-hmm. uh, as a side thing or a hobby. Uh, you know, I, I was previously doing a food cart, and, I mean, that just started out of me cooking by myself. Uh, and then I got some jobs cooking, and I started a food cart. But I was into wine, and I was into reading about wine um, before I started making wine. And uh, But it was very confusing to me. Mm-hmm. And mainly what I did was I accumulated uh slowly uh, a vocabulary to describe what I liked. But uh, I didn't really know why one thing tasted like something and something tasted like something else. And I didn't even really understand what the regions were and what terroir was. It was all sort of mysterious. Ooh, I, I got what? questions for you about terroir later. 
And I think there is an element in winemaking where there's mystery. But, you know, beer making is, is very similar to wine in that um, it's also kind of hard to tell why beer tastes like what it does. And, sure. and beer has a much lower level of... Uh, care? You know, like care? Touching it? Messing with there's it? There's pretentiousness with beer. Yeah. It's still difficult to drink different beers and know what they're doing mm-hmm. unless uh, you brew beer or you make wine. And then, so then when I started making wine in my basement, and it was just like when I was doing brewing beer, all these things fell into place. Right. What was terroir and what wasn't terroir? It just started to seem pretty clear to me that, uh, oh, here's the things that you can change as a winemaker. And, and here are faults. That was a lot of the education. It's here's what faults are. And then things are successful. You're like, my God, that's what something good tastes like. So then you go out and you taste other people's wines and you can start saying, uh, this is from a winemaking technique. This, and, and most flavors in wine are from techniques. But again, the mythology is that it's a location and not the individual. Right. Um, the individual is usually described as like a, a caretaker of the land or, or somebody who's just sort of shepherding the wine through the process. And, and they're just a very modest person who does almost nothing. Uh, so I felt like things really came together knowing how, how it was made. Okay. Um, and that, that clarified a lot of things. Well, that, that makes sense. And like one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the, was the breadths that can be, that can, I guess, uh, grow inside the barrel and and kind of affect the farminess of wine and Mason you you and I both know about Bretts from mm-hmm. sour beers and yeah. and how you can get really interesting or saisons or uh kind of these more farmy beers that that we both have enjoyed a lot uh and uh that from what i understand is from that and also uh my favorite salami of all time is the is the San Fran- is salami from San Francisco that's uh, dry cured in San Francisco and they have a really interesting um process of doing it and they say that it's from that 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 san francisco brett uh varietal or whatever that is out there just kind of floating around in the san francisco air that makes the salami taste the way that the salami tastes or the sourdough bread that's there tastes the way that the sourdough bread tastes um but kind of like to touch on that terroir that you were talking about like that's something i've been really interesting or interested in lately i'm reading a book about french terroir and it does seem sort of like this kind of oddly pretentious notion but at the same time there is clearly a difference between, um, like the Bordeaux that that we get, that you know, Mason, we had those Bordeaux with Jackson, uh, okay. and a uh, Meritage Bordeaux style blend from Texas, for example, which I've had one of those recently and did, did did a review on that, and they're both very very different. And I guess John, what I want to do is ask you, what do you think the what do you think terroir means? Because I've seen a lot of people say it means different things, and then also does where you are fermenting your grapes and making your wine, does that uh, change the terroir? Are you producing a different wine from those same grapes that somebody who is uh, fermenting the grapes back, you know, out on the field near near where the grapes are being grown? Are, is there a difference there, or is or do you think that's just kind of bunk and that's just part of the the wine culture and the mysticism that's involved? Now, the second question, you were saying the grapes grown, you're wondering about the grapes grown in somebody's backyard? No, 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 no. Like, so you get, you get your, like, let's say that, that the one that you have on your website, it was uh, the Justin Smith Pinot Noir from Willamette Valley. If you, yeah, if you had those same grapes and they were, they were fermented and turned into wine on the winery versus in Portland, 
What's the difference there? Well, the difference there would probably be very little. Okay. But uh, well, terroir is a it's not a defined concept, and it it now I'm not saying God exists or doesn't exist, but it's it's a concept similar to God. You know, okay. you can ask one person, God says, well, it's perfectly compatible with modern science the other person says oh it involves magic uh you know some i i think terroir though is it is a real thing and it basically just means um the the totality of the environment that the grapes are growing which would include soil and weather and some people i think especially french people they include the psychology of the winemaker in the terroir concept too okay. which that's, that's interesting that, that might be stretching it a little bit but, you know, definitely. I mean, there's a school of winemaking in France, school of winemaking in California. Some people would say that's part of terroir. But, it, you know, but the core, I think, of terroir is that the the weather definitely affects okay. grapes. The soil, that's actually kind of debatable, whether the soil really does affect the grapes. But there's aspects in the soil that definitely do, like drainage, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, soil type, uh Maybe then you go down to individual soil types, which is getting of the same class that and that people are differentiating between. Um, you know, like in Oregon, the main differences are uh, I don't know. They have jory, which is uh, like a volcanic soil, and you know I really don't know very much about soils, but uh, they they differentiate all these volcanic sandy soils into all these different types, and um, they've done some tests. And they've done blind trials where, and and the, the the grape varietal is much more distinguishable than the soil type, but uh, but the terroir includes all of those things, and um, the climate is really the biggest one because you've got these cool climates that allow grapes to get ripe, and and I mean you can do terroir tests yourself because the uh, or you can see the effects of terroir. Because these grape, uh, like when they say Pinot Noir, then you get into these, there's all of these clones of Pinot Noir. And okay. So Pinot Noir would be saying like you have a, I don't know, a, a dog, and then you've got these clonal types of Pinot Noir, which are slightly different variations. But then, you know, it's, it's, say there's 777 is one of the clones of Pinot Noir, and you can grow that in Oregon, and you can grow that in California, and they are genetically identical. They're they're the all 777 comes from a certain vine in France in 1980 or something, and they're all identical to that. There's no variation. So you can go and taste a California Pinot and an Oregon Pinot, and it's like night and day. Yeah, oh, and definitely. California Pinot is going to taste like uh, Merlot, and, and the Oregon Pinot is going to taste more like what you think of as an Oregon Pinot. And the whole, that's terroir, is causing all of that difference. Or terroir, which, I mean, you could say weather would be a synonym. Okay. Or climate, which kind of includes soil, maybe. Well, that was that, that was one thing I was reading about, and this is, I guess, for the listeners. You probably know this, John and Mason. You 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 probably have an idea of this. But one thing I was reading about recently, I'm reading this interesting book called uh, "God Forsaken Grapes." That's about uh, it's about like unusual grape varietals. But one of the things that he was talking about was like you could have a, a Oregon Pinot Noir. And you could have a California Pinot Noir. And the difference that's between the two is that during the seasons, you're going to have a different angle of the sun hitting your vines because of the tilt of the earth. <laughs> so, uh, and that and that plays into terroir. And that was one of the things he was talking about where he's like, if you think about it, uh, most of France is like, as far as the, the 
the position on the earth would be parallel to like uh british columbia not parallel to like oregon and washington it, it's it's way further high it, it's much higher up on the earth so the tilt so the, the the sugars that are in france and the and then when you come down to oregon you're really talking about it paralleling like spain so you're going to have a different angle of the sunlight on it now Everything else that goes into it, you have this cool climate coming from the Pacific Ocean and all these other things, and all that together represents terroir. And I, I find that to be super interesting. Um, the the only part of terroir that I think is – I find it hard to grasp is this idea that like the culture of the winemakers is what also like goes into it. But it may. What's hard uh, about that? It, like the idea that like if you let, – let's say that like I grew up I grew up in, near Sacramento in the, mm-hmm. in the foothills. So like the idea that because I grew up in the foothills near Sacramento and uh, had some sort of connection to that area, that my joy of that area would somehow translate into the flavors in the wine that are in the grapes. Like, oh, uh, well, I think that's just that's just maybe uh, it's romanticism. It's 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 neat. Well, that's the propaganda, maybe because I think what I think that they're saying they're actually saying something that's quite a bit simpler than that. They're, okay, they're they're you know it's just like different schools of, of thought about anything. It's like being a Republican or a Democrat. You know, mm-hmm. you you. You can say that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat might have to do with your heritage or your opposition to your heritage, but you know you're just pursuing politics in a different way. And um, uh, the the French love to talk about their heritage; they just love it. They love to say they're a tenth generation winemaker, and I mean it's great. It is cool. The California people love to talk about their sanitary protocols, and it, it they're just different cultures. Uh, and I think that um, the, the the French do like to say that they have. Uh, I mean, maybe Europeans in general. They they uh, they're generally they dislike that. Um, well, maybe we're getting political here a little bit, but <laughs> go go for it. <laughs> they're just very conflicted. You know, they used to own the whole world, and then they they made all these horrible sins and they renounced them, and and they still want to feel proud. And they love talking about the, their heritage, and that's great. I think that's great. But uh, and in America, we like to say that the family you were born into does not determine who you are, and that's just, that's just the schools of winemaking here. Nobody says, "Oh, you're you're you just started making wine five years ago." I I don't care about you. And uh, <laughs> when your son is making wine, then maybe I'll start uh, paying attention to you. Uh, and um, so I think it's more a, a cult. It's just a cultural thing. And they just make wine in a different way. They make wine more intuitively. Uh, they they if if you they're using scientific methods to make wine, they they want to keep that secret and not let people know. Um, in America, it's just the other way around. You know, you don't brag that you're uh, inherited the winery from your parents. Uh, you say that you're using the best scientific protocols, and you show photos of this immaculately clean winery. Whereas in France, they show photos of a winery with seven inches of mold on it. As a sign of how intuitive they are. Yeah. But <laughs> so that's that is that's very interesting because it kind of goes into like when I was brewing beer and or when I cook even that I have the very I always talk about the same way when a dish is good I always go like well yes I I followed a very procedural method I did this then I did this then I did this then I did this and it was all according to the book and I, and that's how I talk about it. The same thing with beer is that like I don't when I was making you know those brown those brown ales Mason that 
and or the the English bitter that I made for you. Um, none of it was like, yeah. And then I just decided to throw this in. It was all like, no, I did this, 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 and now it's a good beer. And and it is very much. Now, granted, I'm a programmer, so I approach pretty much everything in that same <laughs> that same method. Um, but I, I do think that's interesting that there's like that that cultural the cultural difference, but there's also sort of a, a callback, like a there is a different type of romanticism with uh, American wine. So, like for example, w- one of the labels that uh, actually, and I looked it up because I was I couldn't remember what the wine was, but on Twitter you had a picture, and it was of um, uh, a Merlot from uh, Garnier Vineyards in uh, Mosier, Oregon. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah, the, the one of my Merlots. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so w- one thing that all that struck me about that one was that you had a picture on the front of a house and a bicycle. And the house and the bicycle, it looked exactly like my childhood home. So, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is great. So this was a different type of romanticism. It doesn't have a chateau on it and like... Uh, like this sprawling vineyard, like a like a you know a wine from Bordeaux or from from uh, Burgundy or somewhere like that. It had something that was romantic to me, which was a suburban house with a bicycle in front. And and I thought that I just the juxtaposition on that was so interesting to me because I was like, this looks like it looks like Americana. It it is definitely American. And one thing that you mentioned on that wine, and I kind of and I want to sort of tie this back into wine, was that you said in that time you were not you you were not using sulfates to age it. What do sulfates do for wine? And you also mentioned that it was dusty. Is the dustiness from not having sulfates, or was that just happens to be that that wine was a little bit dusty? Right, yeah. So this was a 2008 wine. Uh, Garnier Vineyard is in the uh, Columbia Gorge uh, region. So this one is Hood River, which is about halfway between uh, uh, Walla Walla, which is the eastern side of the state, and Portland. Uh, uh and that, yeah, that was made in my basement, and that's just a drawing of my house. Um, and I was going through different uh, – I was trying to think of ways to do my label. Um, uh, but the – you know, this whole process of aging wine is uh, – I don't, you know, for, well, for me, it's, it's something I'm thinking about now, and it's the uh, – it's a mysterious process that is not uh, fully understood. But basically um, what happens is that there are a ton of active chemicals, molecules in the wine when it's fresh. And the process of aging, the process of making the wine and getting it to the bottle is sort of making those molecules more complex and more stable. But you don't obviously want it to become neutralized. Right. so the sulfite is an antioxidant, and it binds with uh, it binds with active bacteria, binds with active chemicals in the wine, binds with oxygen, so it prevents the wine from oxidizing. And I was doing it uh, by rote, which is that I would just follow these prescriptions in a book, and they would say uh, add uh, a tablet. I was using these tablets at the time. Add a tablet every time you rack, which should be once a month or once a month and a half, and then you'll end up with this much sulfite in your wine. So I was—I uh, didn't fully understand uh, the aging process or why you would add sulfites, and so I was just erring on the side of not adding a lot. And subsequent to this, I have sent out those. Now I send the wine out for an analysis to get a sulfite reading, and and it tells you exactly what the sulfite level is. And I just. 
you know, and that's those analyses are getting cheaper and cheaper. I mean, ten years ago, I think it cost a hundred bucks for a sulfide analysis. Now it's ten dollars. Um, uh, you can the machines you can buy machines to do it yourself, and those are getting cheaper. Um, and so I had no idea what the sulfide level was in my wine, but I was just sort of terrified of it because I thought of it as only a negative. It was like something you had to use, but in, in an ideal world, you wouldn't have to add any. Um, and, and so, so what I did was I subsequently, I've sent that wine out for a sulfide analysis and it's just the total sulfide level is very low. So I could have okay. had more, but you know the wine. That wine was 2008, so it's 10 years old now. So it's already a, a pretty old wine. Um, and uh, but it it was fine for five, six, seven years, I think. And it's I just I'm kind of a hoarder, so I always keep a little <laughs> bit of everything around. Yeah. And still it goes best. So I have a sample of every wine I've made still. I think in my basement, and most of them were bad. And I just. <laughs> That one went bad after eight years, and then this one went bad after, yeah, this amount of time. Uh, I, I think kind of what I'm hearing, and this is kind of back to tasseling it back to Tawara of it, is, you know, one of the things that you kind of mentioned before that is like how the winemakers always kind of humble themselves, like, oh, I, I shepherded it through this process when it, it's really no, like Tawara, like it does mean something, but it sounds like. You know, you can have two guys standing next to each other, and one guy's got the sum total of, you know, 50 years of winemaking experience, and the other guy's got five, and they're producing from the same vineyard. They're producing in the same spot, fermenting with the same equipment. It's just he knows that, okay, like by, you know, kind of wrote, like, I can put this much sulfite in, and, and the older guy can know these things and kind of do something completely different while the other guy is, like, following a, an instruction manual that may have been written by the other guy, but it's still, like, he just doesn't know those things yet, and it changes. And, you know, the people who kind of experiment where it's like, nah, well, you know, it says do this, but I don't think that's right, so I'm going to try something else and see what happens. So it seems like it kind of goes both ways there, where, like, the, like it can really matter where you're doing the things, but also who's doing it. Well, like, imagine uh, if you're... Uh, a street racer with cars you know you could have there could be two philosophies to street racing it could be based on intimidating people and and so you put the spoiler on your car and all these crazy things that make people intimidated or you could be the philosophy of the street racer where you just you just want to make the fastest car that performs best and it looks like a piece of junk and maybe that's part of your thing you know and and they're both guys who could win a race maybe but they're they're pursuing two different things so i bought uh i got some grapes this year from uh zenith vineyard which i was very excited about i got some pinot gris uh from them and actually they i got it because it was um uh, they weren't able to sell it, and th- this happens every harvest. Every vineyard will have some grapes left over, and normally uh, you commit to purchasing the grapes, you know, well, uh, you could have a contract, so you're years in advance you've purchased the grapes, but but uh, I've done it um, where every year I, I try to, uh, I, I'm small, so I try to, I have one vineyard that I get from usually every year, and then one or two I try to do different things to, to mix things up. But uh, there's always opportunities to buy some grapes at the end of the year. And the reason he didn't sell his Pinot Gris is because it is apparently falling out of favor. 
Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Winemakers. Uh, the problem is that it costs just as much money to grow Pinot Gris as Pinot Noir. But you can sell Pinot Noir for 20 bucks a bottle, and you can only sell Pinot Gris for 10 bucks a bottle. Mm. So these guys are all, everybody's moving to Chardonnay, which you can get 15 or $18 a bottle for more money. So what's cool about this Pinot Gris is it's all being ripped up right now as we speak and uh, is, is never going to be grown again. Uh, in any case, they... Uh, I think I'm going to go to a, a dinner that they're hosting at the vineyard in a, in a month or so. And um, so this guy invites all the winemakers who've made wine from his uh, grapes to the vineyard. And they all bring the same vintage, which uh, I guess would be the 2018 vintage, bring a barrel sample or bottle of wine. And so you got, I think he said uh, there's 25 different winemakers who are purchasing grapes from the Seneth Vineyard. And they all get together, and they all share the wine, and then they all talk about how they've made the wine. And the idea is that you've got the same vineyard, and now maybe they're growing it a little bit differently for everybody. Uh, but it's, just, it's essentially they're all the same grapes, and uh, people talk about how they made it, what they did. And, and you taste the wine, and, and there's subtle variations. And um, it's... Uh, the the way that the winemakers approach it, and this is part of the um, the this this the myth thing is that sometimes if you go to a winery and you do the tasting, they're going to give you the spiel, and I mean they're not going to lie to you, but you know they're going to accentuate uh, the grape or the way they've treated the grape, and they might sometimes mention winemaking practices that they use, such as barrel aging, different ways of barrel aging, but uh, they're not going to highlight that as much. Whereas I would imagine at this winemaker's dinner, they're going to talk about nothing but the way they make wine. <laughs> but this sounds like the absolute most amazing thing to attend because, like, Pinot Gris is one of my favorite varietals. Um, and to hear that, you know, these people are ripping them out, which is frustrating to me because there's somebody I haven't gotten to try. And then it's like, okay, well, all these people rip it out, so then it will get more expensive for the few that do continue to make it because the there will be a small demand, but there will be even less supply. So it's like, damn it. <laughs> Plus then get to hear all these people, like, what they're doing with it and kind of see where they are in the process on producing them would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. There's, I think there still is a um, pretty good amount of Pinot Gris. Yeah, I mean, there's there, it, it, there always is, but to hear that it's, like, even some of it's getting ripped out, it's like, no, Chardonnay, damn it! Yeah, 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 especially, <laughs> this yeah. Jacob's art, this is the wine Jacob and I kick a lot, is Chardonnay, kind of like, uh, it's mm-hmm. the one we haven't managed to get ourselves to either find a, a, a maker that we very much enjoy or kind of get the what people are trying to do with the wine with those wines. So we're just always kind of like, ah. yeah, I'm usually, uh, I usually like American styles of winemaking, but, um, no, I think, uh, I, I love, uh, Burgundian Chardonnay. It's just, it's not, uh, uh, it's not pretentious. Uh, often it's not pretentious. Uh, it's straightforward. It's a really good balance between, um, that cakiness, uh, that you associate with Chardonnay, but also uh, crispness. And um, in the U.S., it, it's just so polarized, and you either get these absurd cake bread-style Chardonnays, or you get the people who are pure in the other direction, and they say 100% stainless steel, no mallow, and, and it tastes like Pinot Gris or something. You know, And, and mm-hmm. you don't get many uh, of those middle-style Chardonnays. Like, that's all Burgundy does, really, is these sort of middle-style. 
ones. Well, sort of on the same note, so you were very excited to, to start working with this Pinot Grigio. Is there any other varietals that are that are grown nearby or that you're interested in getting that are maybe unusual varietals or varietals you haven't worked with that you kind of want to try to get next year or uh, that you're just sort of look, keeping your eye out to work with? Well, uh, at the um, uh, uh, let's see here. I got to pull this up because I'm just not. Uh, uh, don't don't worry about taking time pulling stuff up because I have the power of editing. Okay, <laughs> let me just pull this thing up here because uh, this is a new grape for me. But um, okay, so the Zenith has some. Uh, Oxara. Mm, okay, I've never heard of that one. So I, I think it's somewhere in the back of my mind. I heard the word before, but uh, I certainly have not known about it until uh, just recently. And um, so this is a, uh, it's a pretty rare grape in the U.S. Um, it, it's a, it's like a Swiss uh, variant on Chardonnay, and um, so I'm pretty excited. I've never. Uh, used this before and I don't think I've ever even drank it before so I gotta go out and get some but it uh, uh, he has some availability on that because it's less popular than mm-hmm. his, uh, uh, because it's obscure um, but uh, this uh, it's said to be um, very similar to Chardonnay so I'm excited about using that um, but you know the I have to say that as generally uh, since I've gotten into making wine, I have actually never particularly been interested in obscure varietals. Mm. Is that I mean, I'll, I'll certainly go and, and buy bottles of obscure wines and try them out, but um, I think I'm more interested in how do you? I just feel like there are certain grapes that have been chosen as being. Uh, maybe through a democratic process. I don't know. They're, they're the major grape varietals. Okay. And it's that through massaging them, through whatever means, whether it's in the vineyard or in the winery, you, you can get different qualities out of them. And so uh, it might make for, I don't know, a boring interview in terms of asking me about obscure things. But, well, you know, I, yeah. I sort of, I, you know, I just get, you know, Oregon – Pinot Noir all the time, and I'm like, oh, how do they do it? How do they do it? Or I get California Pinot Noir, and it's like, oh my god, it's so much different with well, the same grape. I, well, I think that makes makes a lot of sense because I'm sure that being an entrepreneur and a winemaker, there is some some degree of risk involved where you have to make a decision. What are people drinking? And one of the things, like I, I'm reading this, like I, I mentioned it before, and actually I'll put it in the show notes. It's called uh, God Forsaken Grapes. And it talks a little bit about how the noble grapes basically just took over because all of these obscure kind of peasant grapes or whatever um, were just not not what royalty was drinking. And so everybody started wanting to drink these noble grapes. But there's a lot of uh, unusual varietals that are available for people. And they're starting to kind of pick up steam because people are starting to get a little bit sick of, you know, the uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Pinot Noir, all these types of things. They, they want to try something different. But at the same time, they do all of the noble grapes so well that it's difficult to want to put the time and effort into creating good varietals of these other ones. Like I was reading about one, 
and I don't recall the, the varietal, but it was a hybrid between an American varietal and a European varietal. And, <clears throat> and they were saying it was, it was so interesting that like, the guy didn't want to describe it as good because he said it wasn't very good. It was sort of like wet dog, but he said it was very interesting. And he's like, I want to be able to try these types of things, even though this is, I would still want to go get a Pinot Noir to have with like, you know, a, a nice dinner or whatever. I'd want a Pinot Noir because I know what that's supposed to be. But at the same time, I also want to try these like bizarre, obscure grape varietals. Yeah. Um, so I, I, that's, I, I think that's interesting. And, I, and I'm interested to see what if you if you can get some of these. Say it again. It was Axaros. Axaros. Well, I believe it's pronounced Axelra, but uh, Axelra. Okay. Spelled A U X E R R O I S. Okay. Well, yeah, that's the classic thing about our our show is we we <laughs> pronounce everything terribly. So yeah. uh, I love the so they they've got this tradition in England where they take French words and they anglicize them and they don't try you know it's like when I listen to NPR and uh, they pronounce foreigners' names, they will pronounce people from other country in a more clear and delineated and articulate voice than anybody in that country would ever pronounce that person's name. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's like in English, it's like the French are like, oh, we got this great thing, arugula. And the English are like, oh, we're love rocket. So good. This great wine called Bordeaux. And the English are like, oh, it's Bordeaux. And uh, they say, it's, it's a Claret style wine. And they say Claret. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a good way to do it. So our, our problem is that we. You can just make the word pronounceable in your own language. I don't yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. Well, as long as people know. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's the other thing is like when you, when you're doing a show like this, and having the ability to present what what wine you're even talking about in a way that yeah. is close to the pronunciation, because like there have been times where Jacob and I have like heard the pronunciation of something later, and, and not really on the show, and been like, we weren't even close. Like we weren't right. even getting half the syllables close to the right thing. But and I, I think that's what you know is very interesting in the like asking about what what type of wines that you are interested in or varietals that you're interested in working with because you know you always have that like like uh we when we first started the show jacob was always doing cabs i was always doing pinot gris as, as the review and we were kind of like well this is what we like and then you know quickly like i was going through like every pinot gris i could buy in a certain price level at total wine and i kind of ran out of the ones that i was like yeah i'm i've bought the $8 to the $20 ones. I'm not going to buy the $4 and I'm not really comfortable going up to 25 yet. So it's, it's really interesting, you know, people in like sideways, the kind of where people get locked in a, a varietal of grape that they really enjoy, but like hearing it from a winemaker, it's like, well, no, like these are widely available. The style is really interesting. And I want to kind of Keep ex it sounded to me like you were kind of still exploring what you could do with, you know, uh, Noir and, and a few others, whereas, you know, kind of from the exotic standpoint, it's like, yeah, I don't need to go get a Georgian varietal that I have no idea what this is even supposed to be close to like and then possibly lose a bunch of money because I have no idea what I was doing. Whereas, you know, at least with like Noir, you can try quite a few of them and like, this is where I need to be at least near as opposed to like some of the more exotic Georgians where you're like, yeah, this is the 
orange wine. I don't know what that's supposed to taste like. <laughs> and, and then the one in the U.S., you can get three, and you're like, oh, I think I'm making doing a good job of those. Like, yeah, those are all the terrible <laughs> ones that we export because no one here will drink them. <laughs> it is hard to know. Uh, yeah, what's good? My my dad is a big fan of uh, this thing called uh, Retsina, which they make in Greece, which is I don't think it's a specific bridal that they put in it, but the main quality is they age it in pine barrels. Oh, that's so interesting. That's very interesting. Strong pine sap flavor. Huh. huh. Uh, what do you What do you say that's called? It's called Retsina. Oh man, I gotta try that. That sounds super interesting. Yeah, yeah it's it's a trip. Um, but it is the 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 problem with wine and the varietal issue. I think it goes back. I think that's just a fundamental constant of wine, and it's that if you want to start a vineyard, you've got to put these grapes and the, the labor on these vineyards is unbelievable how much labor it is. I mean, uh, if you have uh, uh, 2,000 vines per acre and each vine requires 15 minutes of work over the course of a year, you're looking at 500 hours of labor per acre. Oh, and wow. A small vineyard will be 40 acres. You know. Well, I mean, um, I, I grew, I grew did, like five did, vines that were just for eating grapes, and it took me almost four years to get any grapes out of them. Right. So it takes three years, four years for the grapes to even start growing. Then you make the wine, and then the wine, you can only make it once a year, and you have, uh, it takes a year for you to figure out what it tastes like. So, like in Oregon, they started growing Pinot Noir in Oregon uh, about 40 years ago. So there's been 40 vintages in Oregon. And even now, they are still planting vines in new hillsides. And they're still figuring out what Pinot Noir does in different areas. And the process is so slow because of all of those time delays. And, and when, when you start adding multiple factors every vintage to test with, uh, it becomes really difficult. Like a problem I've had is that, um, you know, I'm a small winemaker. So I have, uh, so let's say I buy um, uh, two tons of grapes from a vineyard and I say oh one ton is from the 777 clone of Pinot Noir one ton is from the Pomard clone of a Pinot Noir well this is very fascinating I'll do an experiment and I'll see what Pomard versus 777 tastes like mm. well I'm making the wine then over the course of the year I blend it a little bit and do stuff to it and then it, individual things have happened to individual lots and by the end of the year i'm like what differences were caused by the strain versus how i treated it and then it's been blended a little bit inevitably because you have to fill all of these tanks up all the way mm. you can't just fill them up it's not like uh, putting marbles in a jar you, you've, if, if the barrel isn't full with the 777 i I've got to fill it the rest of the way with the pomard. So it's really hard. So I've sort of given up on that. It's like I should just I should just buy, uh, you know, the most I could tell is what a vineyard is doing. And, and to tell what the clonal difference is between these things is, is uh, pretty hard. And then you get to the other issue where it's like, was this even a difference between the clones because there are different locations on the vineyard? There's so many factors that go into And this is all terroir. You know, okay. There's so many factors that go into what makes the wine the wine, and you can only do it once a year. Whereas when you're doing beer brewing, your average brewer might brew 100 lots a year. A small oh, yeah. brewery is going to brew 50 lots a year. And so you can iterate much more quickly, and you have a much more fixed uh, inputs because the, the grain has been dried and there's less variation with the wheat. 
and and you can buy a lot of those ingredients year round. So like the way the evolution of the grapes has worked in the Willamette Valley is that people, when they first came here in the seventies and started planting grapes, they were just throwing spaghetti at the wall. They're they're growing Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Riesling, uh, Merlot, Tempranillo, everything. What works? And eventually, for somehow, they settled on Pinot Noir. So everybody's growing Pinot Noir. And that's sort of how it happens in all these regions. Like, was Pinot Noir selected in the Willamette Valley because it sounds good and it sells? And there might be another grape from Italy that it doesn't have as much brand recognition to start with? Or is Pinot Noir truly the best grape? that grows in the Willamette Valley. Uh, and But then there's that, that cultural thing of you want to grow a vineyard in the Willamette Valley. Well, Pinot Noir is the way to go because if you grow some other grape, it's going to be really hard to sell it. So it the way it works out with grapes is that regions generally establish an identity around a certain grape. And France has a very good narrative going and a lot of skill and a lot of gut-level instincts that are correct. Mm. And that why they've dominated yeah they've got that whole aristocratic thing going on which wine benefits from they've got the um the 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 sense of french intuition as well they've got the 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 napoleonic farmer thing and burgundy uh so many good stories coming out of france uh champagne is such a phenomenal story and it's such a good example i think of the difference between pretension and uh and truth which is the champagne is a phenomenal success story and what it is is the one of the more northernmost regions in france for growing grapes and they were trying to grow i think they were trying to grow chardonnay for hundreds of years and they were sort of known as this backwater and it just wasn't really well-known area and so at some point when i think bottles the bottle technology was developed in like 1750 and around that time, somebody in Champagne got the idea that they could take the unripe Chardonnay, because they're growing unripe Chardonnay, was not, and they could carbonate it in the bottle and age it in a certain way. And it actually would make the unripe Chardonnay taste pretty good. And and that's what Champagne is. It's unripe Chardonnay that's been carbonated and aged on the lees. And so it's a legitimately good and unique style of wine, but it all comes from... Mm-hmm. The un, unripe climate, but you'll you can read you can literally read stories about Chardonnay and and uh, Champagne, and they will tell you about how the climate is amazing and it's wonderful, and this was the best harvest ever. And it's like it's like I thought your whole style was based on unripeness. <laughs> like, That's interesting. The problem that California had when they tried to make a copy of Champagne was that they were putting they were making it with ripe grapes. And eventually they realized they needed to grow the plant, the Chardonnay, at a higher elevation to get them to be uh, – the, the phenolic ripeness is unripe, but the, the sugars are ripe. Or in Champagne, you never know how much sugar – in France, well, anywhere. That's the other thing. Anywhere in the world, you never know how much sugar people are adding. I don't know if people in Champagne are adding sugar or not, but in any case, the grapes are phenolically unripe, which creates that flavor profile of Champagne. So That is – that's – very interesting. We've actually we've talked a little bit about that before um, because champagne is such a uh, like it's just it's just a it's a really easy one. You know, when you talk to people who who don't really know much about wine, they at least know the name champagne, and uh, that we've 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 talked about that a little bit. I, I don't remember the lady's name, but there was like some uh, some lady who there who got the idea after her husband died. She she figured out the bottle riddling. 
to like uh, put it in the bottles. They, the technology came from Britain, I guess, to have these glass bottles. And then they would sell it to the British because all the French thought that the bubbles were a flaw. And then the British were like, we love this. Well, this is great. <laughs> and uh, like this whole idea that like it, it's very British, very American where it's just like – you know, like it's like chitlins or collard greens or like all these foods that we like in the South where it's like garbage food, but we love it. <laughs> like what's what, you know, you, you figure out how to make it good. And and sort of, you know, to your point too, and Mason, I think you've got a question to get to next in the show notes. Um, but to that same point is here in Texas, they're sort of trying to make their bones uh, the way that Oregon has or the way that California has or whatever. And, and te- Texas is not well known for making wine even though they've been making wine here since the 1600s but uh they've got tempranillo which is a a spanish varietal and it's hot similar to spain not as dry as spain but similar and albarino very similar to spain uh not again not as hot much more humid and they both make great wines out of both of these varietals in texas uh and also although vignette is also one that they do very well here in Texas, and that might be from the humidity, who knows. But it, it's interesting to kind of compare them, like uh, Tempranillo from Spain and Tempranillo from Texas, very, very different. And it's and now you've actually added, John, another complexity to this, is and that is clone varietals. I, I, that didn't ever occur to me, and it's interesting. Well, yeah, it's uh, – I think they're less – you know – I, I mean, I'm not a uh, high-status winemaker or anything. I, I, I don't, I don't do not obsess myself mm-hmm. about clone varietals. They just don't. It's they're very subtle, and you can pretty much divide them into uh, the main origin of clone varietals is um, production quantity versus quality. That's the main division. There's, okay. there's if you want to produce cheap wine and, and a large quantity you choose one clone and if you want to choose make high quality wine you choose another clone so within high quality wine or high or high production wine i don't it's just another thing to geek out about but you know i was worried about the texas i know nothing about texas wine okay but i do know that texas has some unusual microclimates like they got the hill country yeah outside of and is this where all the wine, uh, vineyards are in Texas so, in these microclimates? Yeah, there's like two big ones here. Uh, there's Texas Hill Country, which is down by Austin. And then there's the High Plains. And High Plains is up in that kind of like square part up in the northern part. And there's there's a couple of uh, newer regions. There's Texoma and um, St. something, St. Saint, or, or maybe Mount, Mount something. I don't know. There's one down by Marfra, Texas. Uh, I can't remember what that What's that? Well, I was in Marfa like oh. a year ago. Yeah, that, that's one of the newer ones. And they, they actually – they have a higher elevation. So the even though it's very, very dry there because they can use irrigation and stuff, they can make very interesting and very um, – I mean, they, they do, they do, uh, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon there and they do, um, they can do Pinot Grigio. They can do some, some of those things, but what Texas is mostly, I, I would, what I would say they're mostly known for, or what they're known for to me is Tempranillo and, uh, Alberino and Vignet. And I think they do those very well. Uh, you know, I, I was living in Virginia for a long time and I think Vignet in Virginia is very good as well. And Texas, I would say is very, very close, even though they're very, very different places and they do have a there is a difference between the vignette in Texas and, and Virginia, but it's but a lot of the vignettes, like you know, Mason, you but you were getting some from Williamsburg Winery, like Williamsburg mm-hmm. Winery, not quite as dry as Texas Hill Country, but probably just as hot and um, 
very different soil, I'm sure. But uh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff coming going on in Texas. It may it might be too hot to make really good wine here, but they do make wine, and it and it's interesting. And I think their Tempranillo is very good. Um, well, there was something I was thinking about when you were talking about terroir, and and just now with the Texas climate. But um, so my sister lives in South Africa, and okay. I've been visiting her. Uh, I don't know if I ever would have visited South Africa if she hadn't lived there, but. Uh, so they, uh, and she lives, uh, sort of near that, uh, Stellenbosch wine region. So okay. I've gone so that's where, they, that's where they do like Pinotage and all, and, uh, that type of thing, right? Pinotage, yeah, which is their cross between, um, uh, you know, anyone can make their own, uh, species of grape. You just crossbreed them. But okay. Pinotage is the South African cross between, uh, Pinot Noir and Meritage. Hmm. And it ends up uh, it has a kind of Cabernet Franc quality yeah, to it. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually a huge fan of, of Cabernet Franc. I'm also a huge fan of Pinotage, which is yeah. they are very similar in a lot of ways. I, I it's Pinotage is a little bit more aggressive, but they're they are similar. They also do uh Cabernet Sauvignon and um they do Claret style wines, Bordeaux hmm. style wines. And um so Bordeaux is a cool climate. And I think it's pretty similar to Washington, actually. It's mm-hmm. maybe it's similar to you know, California, Napa has such an odd climate. I mean, I have to remind myself of this all the time. I always think it's warmer, but I mean it's not necessarily no, warm. Yeah. That that's I mean, that's not quite but, where I'm from in California, but it but the Bay Area the, is such a strange it, it's cold yeah. it's like cold and hot. It's weird. And it's actually I believe on average colder in the summer than the winter. Uh, right. Yeah, it's weird. It's but you know, Cabernet Sauvignon was bred for a cool climate, such as Bordeaux has. Uh, and now, and there, I believe fifty. You know, uh, Washington would be forty-eight degrees north. Napa uh, is probably forty-two, and I think uh, Bordeaux is possibly forty-eight as well. They're further north. Okay. Like Europe has a mild climate due to the southern winds from the Atlantic. Right. Anyway, uh, South Africa is 35 degrees south, which would be the equivalent of L.A., and they are hot, really hot. I mean, they're a desert. It's like the climate is like L.A. It's oh, super interesting. hot. And it's, and it's been getting hotter, just like I think for everybody, uh, global warming has added, bumped up uh, the average temperature one or two degrees in our lifetimes. And it's getting hotter. They've suffered some droughts recently, um, but it's always been hot. And but they nonetheless they make a Cabernet Sauvignon and a Claret in South Africa that is very similar to Bordeaux. So it's like, how does that happen? And it's it's just due to uh, the way the grape biology works, which is that um, when the temperature gets extremely hot, like they have. So, I mean, I've been to these vineyards, uh, when I've been down there in the summer, it's 95 degrees out. Uh, they have irrigation lines set up, but they don't have water because it's a drought. So they can't even irrigate. I mean, forget about spraying the canopy mm-hmm. with water. Cool. So the grapes are, the leaves are turning brown, you know, harvest hasn't even happened yet, but the leaves are turning brown. And so the, the grapes shut down. They, uh, it gets so hot that the grape can't uh, – it's still alive, but it, it, it stops photosynthesizing and converting uh, 
dirt or whatever into sugar. So using the sunlight to create more sugar. So right. it shuts down. And so, and, and this is, I think, been true for the whole history of winemaking there, which is 300 years old. So they naturally get 12.5% alcohol out of their grapes, even though the climate, not because the climate is generous like Napa, because the climate is so extremely hot that it actually causes the grapes to resemble a Bordeaux-style wine and um i just think that's sort of an amazing example of terroir where they still i mean and the winemaker is shooting for an old old world bordeaux style quality so they're doing all the things to encourage that but then they also have these grapes that are like suffering and dying and withering up i mean you like look at them and they're like withered and gentle but you know they say that you need to make the grapes suffer but uh I've I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, The struggle is what adds the flavor. They really struggle there. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's that's a really interesting way to look at terroir. Again, king of mispronunciation (laughs) over here, but like that that is like a really interesting way to to look at it and think about it. Because like when when I always think about it, I always think I always imagine it kind of from the the standpoint in. Jackson Blood, you know, kind of talks about it where the, you know, the left and right bank in in Bordeaux and it's like the difference between just five miles down the road, whereas, you know, you're saying like I looked it up, Bordeaux is like 44 degrees north for latitude. Um, And, you know, as you're saying, South Africa, the growing region there is like in the 30s and it's completely different. And yet they're getting very close to the same thing. And that's knowing the grape variety and, but also knowing, kind of looking at the terroir and going like, okay, we have this in the environment. Well, what can we mimic or produce with that and and kind of growing what they could there? Whereas, you know, maybe there is a varietal that would have been better suited for that lack of energy or lack of a more hostile environment. And here they go like, no, 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 we're going to still do this one. But we're going to make it work because we get these things that mimic it. And that's really interesting because I hadn't even considered it from that level because I was just imagining it as two French guys arguing with each other about, like, how the cow dung from John's farm as opposed to the cow dung from, you know, Frank's farm is that much better, <laughs> you know, and it, they're like brothers next to each other. <laughs> They definitely have conversations like that in Oregon about whose cow's dung is better. But yeah, well, I'm pretty sure anywhere where you're using cow dung, that happens. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I'm a winemaker, but I don't own a vineyard. So you know, this, it would make sense that I would have the idea that the winemaker is more important than the vineyard, or the winemaker, the vineyard produces product, and you package and set. Um, I think the winemaker has a huge impact on the wine, and that's generally, I think, the way Americans think. Um, and I, you know, I think it's it's again a, a, a cultural thing where if you're a eighth generation winemaker and and you've inherited uh, a winery that exists in a region that is just so ancient and and has. Uh, you know, uh, just like how all computers are programmed in English, right? All wine all over the world is talked about in the French language, and and it's natural that you would feel like you have inherited something really uh, sacred, and that you don't want to mess with that too much, and that you might think that you're just a steward of the grapes, and it's very natural for Americans to think. 
well, I'll just come in here and do my own thing, and it's going to be great because I'm cutting through the bullshit. <laughs> and, and it sounds like us. <laughs> yeah. Different philosophies. Yeah, so I I have some more more technical questions, I think, from here, if you don't mind. Sure. So well, we've got two, and you can kind of pick which one or if you want to answer both. So, you know, as, as you're – we kind of discussed a little bit. You're you're mainly working with uh, Pinot Noir. You, you do work with Pinot Noir pretty often, but you also work with Marlowe. Have you noticed a, a large difference in working with the two different varieties? Like, you know, kind of how you I want I don't want to say treat necessarily, but like how like they kind of respond differently or that when you're producing them, but also just in general, like how much wine each year are you actually producing? Like volume wise and if you're not comfortable answering you know either of those it's perfectly fine but kind of from that like you're saying you know possibly buying like two tons of grapes what does that like equal out to in like actual production let's say uh well okay well i'll start with my production volume because that's probably a simpler question (laughs) uh i am uh mainly a winemaker and i am uh I have to say, I make a small amount of wine, and I sell it locally, but my sales abilities are not my thing. And if I were to increase the amount I made, I just see it's like, oh, my God, it would be such a slog selling it. So I've, uh, uh, with my winery, I've, uh, over the last two years, I've been turning it into sort of a collective where I'm more uh, the winemaker or the the equipment uh, uh, person. Mm -hmm. I was going with that. But the, um, okay, so all, oh, right. I think in terms of tons of grapes rather mm-hmm. than aces, so I'd have to convert this. So let's say I bought, uh, uh, well, we'll do this year. So I bought uh, 12 tons of grapes. So that's uh, 24,000 pounds of grapes. Now there are uh, eight pounds in a gallon. So that means I've made 3,000 gallons theoretically. However, you know, there's skin, stems, Mm -hmm. then the yeast when you ferment is pretty significant. So you generally end up with uh, 75% of what you've made. So so you got 3,000 gallons times 0.75. So you end up with, so I'll end up at the end of the year with 2,250 gallons of wine. And then you've got five bottles per gallon. So, so you got 2,250 gallons divided by five bottles per gallon. Uh, no, wait, times. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're looking at like 10,000. So you're looking at 11,000 bottles, which is 1,000 cases. So that's my production, uh, which is uh, industry speak, that would be uh, minuscule. But uh, so that's how it works out. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot at first. He's like, "Oh, uh, twenty four thousand pounds of grapes." But well, I mean, like we, at one point we we did a comparison with the total production of wine volume, uh, gallon wise, compared to the volume of the Great Lakes in a year. <laughs> like it was just a, a random calculation I did on something I was looking at, and you know, obviously it's minuscule, but I mean, like a thousand cases of wine to me, like. A, I understand, like, you know, you look at, like, somebody like Copper Cane, these these very large production facilities. and Millions of cases. Yeah. And then, but I still look at a 1,000, and I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> like, that's just, like, I, 
you know, I, I've seen a thousand dollars in cash, but I, I couldn't imagine walking into a place and there's a thousand cases of wine and going like, he's got to sell these. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> like this is, this is, it's like, it'd be different if you're like, oh, this is my warehouse where I store what I've already sold. It's like, no, 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 this is what, this is the next move. Like he spent all this time making it, shepherding it to here. Now he's got to sell it. Crap. <laughs> a pretty small amount. You can sell it throughout the state of Oregon. Pretty well. You know, and you you still got to sell it. <laughs> like, yeah. As you said, like you know, you you've kind of like it's very interesting to kind of think of like the idea of the shift from you know being a winemaker and obviously making wine, and but also having the equipment and being like, well, I could also rent this, <laughs> and like kind of from that idea like a, it's an interesting kind of because we were talking about beer too it's like you know what with you the, renting the equipment are you talking about you're thinking about making one no 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 you were saying you're like looking more like it from a collective standpoint and so that was the closest i could kind of understand that idea is like having the facilities available for other producers is kind of how i understood that in my head as, as a collective idea and that might not be right so well this is another uh one of these uh, sort of myths about wine but um you know i get this question all the time uh i say oh i have a winery uh, making wine and then they say oh where's your vineyard and i say well i don't own a vineyard and then people say oh i'm sorry you know it's almost like (laughs) you know established i realize you're just a small bore guy but you know it's it's generally the the story is that uh wineries are estate vineyards but then there's this idea of the collective, uh, or there's the collective, which is, um, you know, maybe it, it's, this is actually much more common than one might think. And uh, uh, in fact, the vast majority of wines are made in collective style relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not by volume, but by numbers. Uh, I mean, at the very least, I know, and uh, uh, it, it's. Uh, because it's this thing where everybody wants to say that they're this independent building that is exists on an estate that has vines growing around it, and, and uh, well, maybe it would help if you define. Brilliant! They came up with this term garagiste, and now it's cool to be a garagiste because the French have a term for it. <laughs> you say I make garage wine, and you're like, oh, you're so low class. But in France, they're like, no, I'm a garagiste. And they say, "Oh my God, it's amazing! He's so such an individual." So maybe well, maybe it would help if you define what you mean by collective, um, or what that means specifically. Well, the the technical term is custom crush, and it means that there's a single winemaking facility, and multiple people are using that facility under a mm-hmm. single federal permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody's an independent. That's the thing. Everybody's an independent winemaker. It's not like I'm making their wine. Oh, yeah, are, so that, that's... Their wine. They're getting their grapes, but legally and technically, they might be a uh, uh, just part of another winery. And so then it becomes when they start doing their sales pitch, it becomes a little uh, difficult. There's a little. Then they have to start thinking about how they're going to do the sales pitch. Where it's like they have to explain that. They are an independent winemaker, but they're in another facility. They don't own a vineyard, but no, this is actually their wine and their vision. That's all true. But well, and that's... Be because people are going to think, oh, you don't own a vineyard? You don't even own your own winery? Oh, my God. Well, and that's kind of what I meant about the um, 
renting the equipment to someone else. It's kind of like you have the facility for the production and someone else is producing with the equipment. Like there, there's a couple breweries out here that brew at people who bought excess capacity, but they don't have the demand yet. So like, you know, they've got 12, you know, very large stills and they're only using eight of them currently. So two are being continuously used by another company, but it's a separate brewery and they have their own facilities and everything like that, except for the brewing capacity or people will, you know, they contract brew a lot out here where again they basically they don't have their own brew facility but they've the recipes there's the where they sell it is all their location but the actual production is just this one massive brewery that isn't like Budweiser that just is like yeah we you know we took out this massive loan thinking demand would be this but we don't have the demand yet for our stuff but we've got three other guys who continuously need to make beer because they're a brewery so they make it here and the winemaking uh, situation is even more difficult because with beer, you can brew, uh, well, 365 batches a year. I right. suppose. Wanted. Wine, you got to buy all this equipment, and you can only brew one batch a year. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, everybody's equipment is underutilized. So that whole and, – and that's how it works is that breweries, uh, I think, you know, what you described is a little more rare – in the brewery world, because it's so easy to utilize all your equipment. With the wine, once you get the facility and the equipment, it's like it, it's very easy to just have some other people use your equipment because the, the, the equipment is so it's used very little for for what you're doing, and it's very easy to slot in somebody else on it. Or at the very least, it's like you have a press that presses grapes, and you're only using the press two months a year. And it's like, okay, somebody else wants to use the press, but they need to use it between midnight and 6 a.m. And that's actually reasonable because the press is already only being used two months out of the year. So, you know, people are willing to do that during the wine harvest, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. work at midnight because... It, it only happens once a year. Right. Yeah, and you, you've got to get it done because otherwise, like, there goes the harvest. Yeah. Or that, that, you incur another cost to somehow store that, and that can change profile and everything like that if you're looking for certain things. So, I mean, that's really a – I would be interesting to see if you could find, a like, a way to somehow use the equipment more or find some, like, an environment where you, like, you know, thinking about – you know, we've talked about a little bit of South America, you know, South Africa being too hot, but like if you could get to, you know, some of these places that have, you know, a continuous climate, like in the Caribbean, if you could find somehow arrange varietals that produce there where you could try to harvest more a year oh, or something two, like that. Two harvests a year. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, that would be, that would be very difficult. Um, I kind of want to rein this in because we're running low on time, but I, <laughs> yeah. but John, you had, you, you you went through all of our questions and I've got like thirty more questions so I'd love to have you on again. Um, but oh I, wow, okay. But I've because I've got a whole bunch more questions to go. But I but also like we're already at an hour and thirty and when I edit this down it'll only be about like an hour and fifteen. So um, I, I want to have you on again. But I do have just quick two questions. There are things that you mentioned earlier and and I just kind of wanted to get you to elaborate on this because this is something that I'm not sure about. When I brew beer, I add yeast. Um, I've brewed medicinal beer before, and in medicinal beer, you add sugar or, or honey. Um, when you're making wine, you, you mentioned that sometimes people add yeast or, or depends on if they're adding yeast or that the, that the yeast has uh, an effect on the weight 
Also, what about sugar? Like, do when what is going on there? Is it because that like like champagne? I think was the example with sugar. Is is it because the grapes are too low in sugar to make the volume of alcohol that they're desiring, or what's going on there? Oh. No, so the yeast is, um, you know, it's an organism and it grows. Mm-hmm. And, and all I meant was that um, when, when after the wine is done fermenting, the, 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 you might have added one part yeast, but when you're done, it's propagated and now it's 20 parts yeast. And so if you, say, have a five-gallon carboy of wine, you know, when you rack it off the fermentation, there, there's going to be a half-gallon of of yeast at the bottom and and it's just yeast sludge because it's grown into this right. larger you know they've reproduced so that's what i meant about that but it's just volume reduction okay was well, that uh, it, because yeah. the yeast, when they you know when they propagate they're in this contained environment and so so they yeah they die and they just kind of like become like a, a goop at the bottom the wine and and that the wine that the yeast uses to make its liquid the liquid contents of the cellular organism is taken from your wine and you'll never get it back um but the uh sugar issue is just that you know when you when you harvest your grapes uh you get a sugar reading and it's 22 percent sugar 23 percent sugar and, and generally if the grapes uh, roughly if they're 24 percent sugar you're going to get 12 percent alcohol out of it uh, it's a little more than that. It's like twelve and a half percent. But um, so you can calculate what your alcohol is going to be, and if you think it's going to be too low, you add sugar. Okay, that makes and, sense. And it's it's due to the fact that, or it's due to when the when the grapes are on the vine, there's two types of ripeness. There's ripeness in terms of how much sugar it's going to be, which then results in the alcohol level. But then there's this thing called phenolic ripeness, which it's just a fancy word for um, actual ripeness, the taste of ripeness, the taste of fresh fruit. And that taste of fresh fruit might come at 12% alcohol, 13% alcohol, 14% alcohol. And you don't generally, that's another call a human has to make. So not terroir. The human has to decide, when do I pick the grapes? Do I pick them when there's enough sugar or when they taste ripe? And people generally choose to pick them when they taste ripe. And then you add sugar to them if they're not if there's not enough sugar. And uh, in Europe, I think there's some strict rules about it. In America, uh, you can add sugar and you don't have to tell anybody. Mm. <laughs> America. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that that's probably a great place for us to wrap this up. Uh, John, uh, can you stick around for just a minute after we stop recording so I can ask you something that is not recording related? Totally. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right, well, then from us well, at Tasting Anarchy. Hang on, Jacob, oh, let's I, give oh. him, let's, but I, I was going to say, I think we should give John a, an opportunity to plug his winery if oh, they're in the Portland area. I can't believe I um, forgot that. You're yeah, right. So, like, you know, we've, we've taken up all this time, but, like, you know, is there, you know, anything you would like to plug and then any place other than possibly the winery itself that people can consistently try your wine in Oregon? Well, my uh, winery has very little uh, in the way of public-facing features, but anybody can feel free to give me a call or send me an email and um, come by, and I'll give them a tour, show them around, and uh, that would be that'd be really fun. 
So I'd love to meet anybody who is listening to this podcast. You're gonna, you're yeah. gonna, you're gonna meet me, John, because I'll probably be up in Portland in the next year, and I, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll come by just because I I want to know, I want to see it, I want to I want to talk to you, I want to meet you, take you out to dinner, maybe it'll be oh, cool, it'll be man. fun. Um, well, actually, Mason, you know what? Now that that reminds me, we should do the other plugs for like our Twitter and stuff, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think we should. Okay, go ahead. You go ahead and do it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you want to follow Jacob's antics on Twitter, with uh, possibly interacting with John or the uh, fags, as they like to call themselves, or the uh, um, sounds like Liberty guys, um, you can always follow us on uh, Tasting Anarchy at Twitter. Um, if you want to see our very seldom updated blog, but hopefully it will update more frequently. Uh, tastinganarchy.com. If you want to send uh, us an email, tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Uh, John, if they wanted to email you to try to arrange to get a tour, where would they email you? Or was Twitter a better way? Or uh, John at dovydenniswine.com or dovydennis on Twitter. Uh, yeah, those are yeah. You know, guys touch. Just Real quick, this is funny. My wife is Ukrainian and she speaks Russian. Your last name sounds very much like Dosvidanya, which is goodbye. And I, and I so that's I think it's perfect to uh, say Dovidanya's uh, wine, and we're about to leave. So everybody, goodbye, Dosvidanya's. Uh, stay free. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drink it wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Port and sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsby at Willis Den, he wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine, pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, 40, you're to drink wine. Wine, 40, you're to drink wine.